0: And you know, we are a generous people, we are a caring society, but uh, we, we ruled by people who have an utter indifference to any uh, concern except their own narrow self enrichment and uh, self preservation. Mm-hmm.
1: Liberalism is one of the oldest and most important political traditions in South Africa, but what role can liberalism play in today's politics, and what are its future prospects? Well, joining him on the show is Tony Leon. He is the one-time leader of the opposition in South Africa's parliament. He is the former leader of the Democratic Alliance, as well as a one-time ambassador to Argentina. He's now a communications consultant based in Cape Town. Tony Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. So Tony, in the preface to this episode, I asked the question, what is the future of liberalism? But let's look at the past first. Uh, In your experience, what does liberalism in the South African context mean to you?
0: Well, during the apartheid years, it was a fight for an open society in which every South African citizen could participate, both as a voter and with all the rights that we associate with citizenship. And it was also about restricting the powers of the state which, as you know, during apartheid were extremely oppressive, brutal in some instances. So <laughs> during that period uh, in the fight for an open society, yeah, which liberalism espouses, I think liberalism was not that contested as an ideology. But uh, as one of my predecessors as leader of the opposition said, it's actually uh, much more difficult to partake in building an open society than it is in opposing a closed society. And so I guess since 94, ironically, a a victory for liberalism in the sense that the constitutional settlement was broadly stamped liberal democratic, even though the liberal party, which espoused that most enthusiastically did very badly in the poll, there was a victory, at least for the construct of a liberal society. But of course, uh, a lot of folk both the African National Congress and the National Party really used the liberal democratic constitution that they signed off on as an attainment mechanism to get power in the case of the ANC or in the National Party's case not to relinquish too much power rather than a full throated embrace of the constitutional pillars which uh, South Africa is meant to be propped up on. So that is really why uh, South Africa has seen a pretty large attack on liberalism and liberal people uh, since 1994, I would say.
1: But now, 1994 and 1996, when the Constitution was promulgated, in many ways, that was a high watermark for liberalism in South Africa. The Bill of Rights enshrined certain basic protections, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of association. Uh, but in many ways, you know, those protections were not really strong enough to mitigate against some of the abuses of governance that later took place under ANC rule.
0: Yeah, I think that's correct. You know, and also, you know, a constitution is a piece of paper. It's only as strong or as weak as people adhere to it. And, you know, if the ANC decided at its Mafeking conference in 1997 that it would adopt a policy that said the ruling party or the National Democratic Revolution, a profoundly illiberal construct, should basically control the whole of society. And so they deployed their cadres into everything from the constitutional court right down to who was going to be a police station commander in certain key policing districts. And that became, meant it was much more difficult uh, for a liberal democratic order to take root in South Africa. And then of course you've had since then, a a lot of people, not only in, in the ruling party, but elsewhere who've got powerful voices and uh, following in the society actually tearing up the roots of the constitutional order so much so that uh, a new phenomenon well a relatively new phenomenon was evidenced this year where you had two very senior ANC politicians not just attacking aspects of the constitutional settlement such as property rights which have been under assault almost from the get-go in 1996 or 1993 actually but the constitutional order itself, and, and you had uh, Lindiwe Susulu, a senior ANC minister in January, uh, taking aim at both black constitutional judges, calling them "lickspittles" or some such term of abuse, and describing the rule of law, which is that, you know, liberals can disagree on many meanings, but they all, left, right, and uh, moderate liberals agree on the primacy of the rule of law rather than the rule of man saying that that actually was a colonial construct. Uh, And then we had that uh, amplified by the Premier of KwaZulu-Natal on Human Rights Day, 21st of March this year, Mr. Zikolala, with no irony given given the occasion that he was speaking on, which was to promote human rights, said actually, you know, the constitutional order itself should be subservient to parliamentary supremacy or sovereignty of parliament. We've got a majority in parliament, the ANC, and therefore we should use it to get our way. And the last, you know, major adherent of parliamentary supremacy as opposed to the rule of law was P.W. Um, So you have this continuum between the two nationalisms, uh, whether they're Afrikaner nationalism or African nationalism, and it makes the liberal uh, project very much at risk.
1: On the show last year, I had John Kane Berman, the former CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, And his book was called Between Two Fires, which essentially uh, was a metaphor for those competing nationalisms. Liberalism's been this uh, kind of bulwark in the center trying to, uh, you know, uh, navigate through these two extremes, these radical extremes. And I mean, one of the the ways in which liberalism has manifested in South Africa is advocation of or the advocacy of non-racialism. And uh, that seems to be an idea which is also under threat. Could you speak about the, the role of the non racial ideal as part of the liberal tradition in South Africa?
0: Well, with the emphasis on individual rights uh, for any liberal minded person, small or capital L, it's really about the primacy of that bundle of uh, individual components that make up uh, any sentient human being, of which, of course, race or community membership is one. But it's not the only one whereas the race holders in our society of whom there are many would say that there's a a, a, there's an essentialism about race that trumps all other considerations which of course is profoundly illiberal and you know i I thought one of the best rebuttals back in my book future tense let me give it a punt it came out just a few months ago in future tense you know I, i was very struck by the critique offered also by another uh, liberal uh, thinker in south africa charles Simkins, who drew talked about the salience of race and said okay so one of the major redistributive mechanisms in this society which has helped alleviate extreme poverty not eliminated but alleviated has been the distribution of social grants we, we can get into how many have been distributed and what that's been in place of, but it is a palliative, very necessary in a country with such high levels of poverty and unemployment. And Charles made the point that actually the basis for the receipt of the grant is income or poverty, not race. Although it happens that most of the recipients are black Africans, because those who most poor people are in South Africa, And the people paying for the grant, contrary to the election claims, ANC is not the ANC, but the taxpayer, a disproportionate burden of taxation, also for reasons of history, at the personal income tax level falls on white South Africans. But whiteness is not the basis for paying taxation in this country, which applies simply on an income uh, calculation. And nor is race the basis for the receipt of the public good of a social grant, And so I I thought that was almost a complete answer to the question of race-holding, that you actually, there are other measures, which, you know, there's a big fight, I know it goes on all the time. Well, you know, why do you want to be colorblind? What are you trying to achieve? Are you simply going to say, we can never transcend our racial identities, or are we actually trying to create a society where, as Joseph Brodsky, the uh, Russian famous Russian poet, said, in a free society, when a free man fails, he blames no one but himself. Uh, and that level of personal responsibility is what you want to achieve in a country which has a future orientation. Uh, and it is an irony, actually, that uh, in the National Development Plan, they, at the conclusion of the National Development Plan diagnostic, they say, well... Uh, successful countries all have a future orientation. And I'm not sure that uh, holding onto racial identity as everything is going to take us into a worthwhile future. It's certainly going to uh, call back the past, but I don't think it's going to say anything about the sort of country you want to create. Unless, of course, those who adhere to it want us to be in a constant state of racial antagonism, uh, but even then, eventually, you know, you run out of enemies or you run out of targets. And uh, I think it's it's in many ways uh, antediluvian to simply have that as the basis of your politics or your economics. I think there are many other measures. I think there are many other uh, useful public goods that can be advanced without us simply going back into our separate racial trenches. And after all, Although that's a very, I think it's a weasel word, you know, out of which uh, all content has been sucked. I mean, the cardinal founding premise of our constitution is non-racialism, not more racialism.
1: Yeah, and Tony, I think uh, one component of the liberal worldview is the sense of free individuals as economic agents as well. Well, it it isn't,
0: sorry to interrupt you, it isn't, it isn't, I mean, because... Uh, Free individual choice is very important, uh, I think, to all liberals. But if you're a liberal in Europe, let's say, you would argue that applies to economic matters. It applies to everything else. If you're a a believer in liberal economics in America, for example, you're very likely to find yourself um, advancing that in the economic realm, but not in the social realm. Which is why you get free market champions in the United States being very much in favor of having this, giving the state a right to restrict abortion rights, as we're seeing in the Roe v. Wade. So I, I think it differs, you know, time and place, certainly. But I, speaking only for myself, and that's all I'm happily speaking for today, not on behalf of any wider cause, I absolutely think that you've got to have a freedom of choice in the economic realm. And if society, that encourages that and that champions that is more likely to be a society with high levels of economic growth.
1: So, Tony, let's turn now to politics. And, you know, I think it's it's all very good to delve into political theory, but uh, there's theory and there's practice. And you have quite a lot of practice yourself, having led the DA for many years.
0: Scars on my back still, David.
1: So how do you... Bring some of these principles to life in terms of public policy, in terms of the cut and thrust of daily politics and all of the, uh, the conflicts that come with it and the inevitable compromises that uh, inevitably arise?
0: Well, let me say immediately, I, you know, the, the idea of... I, I, I never used to go around saying I'm a liberal with a capital L. and That would have excited no one. Uh, but I think a lot of... Uh, to me, the great advantage of having a liberal outlook and myself... And the party that I led for 13 years, having a broadly liberal philosophy, was it gave you an anchor, a sheet anchor, and when all the winds were blowing different directions, because it gave you a set of principles against which not just measure yourself, but measure your opponents and know which issues to call out, which issues to champion. And, you know, I was reading a fantastic essay recently, a speech by Margaret Atwood when she won the Christopher Hitchens Prize. And she said, the problem with the moderate center is it lacks a big slogan. It also lacks robotic followers, by definition. And, uh, you know, it's going to always have a hard swim. But I actually, in, in a in a lecture uh, in honor of Helen Sussman, well over 12 years ago, when I was uh, leader of the DA, I tried to, you know, crystallize into one paragraph that I can just spare you if you can just spare the quotation what liberal policies do in south africa and the sort of policies that we were then advancing as the dia i don't know if they still advance them but uh, you can get someone to update you on this and i said liberal policies can help the poor a flexible labor market creates more jobs school vouchers improve opportunities for education successful private hospitals help create better health care for all The liberal state removes barriers to market entry that stifle individual opportunity and enterprise. And then, in fact, I quoted the person you had on your program last year, John Kane Berman, that a liberal state is frugal with taxes, recognizing they are the fruits of human labor, not the property of the state. Where it collects its taxes to redistribute, it does so in ways to help the poor start climbing the ladder of self-reliance and success. It avoids doing things that profit-driven entrepreneurs can do more effectively. Where it has to make trade offs, it favors liberty above restriction, the poor above the rich, and consumers above producers. Now, that is a one paragraph distillation, if you like, of taking liberal ideas into the thick of the fight for all South Africans. And you could take any one of those items, listener. you know, many more, but that's just a summary, and say, well, you know, as Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. That, those are pretty strong and solid beliefs or cornerstones which you can use on the road of a kind of party political advancement and you know I, I it also it, it, the, the the problem really is that you're not really opposing they're not political philosophies opposing each other I mean I don't know that the ANC is in any sense a socialist party at all if it's not liberal versus socialist here yeah? It's really liberal versus racial populism. And, you know, populism is a methodology. It's not an ideology as uh, Yuval Noah Harari said recently. And it's also about, you know, patronage and a patron-client relationship. Uh, One of the liberal ideas that, uh, going back to your question on the economy, is that you do indeed have free citizens who have jobs in the private sector primarily, not always. Because you do need a supportive state, and that needs to be uh, manned by people who are competent and diligent and help deliver public services. But a lot of people champion the state not because they think the state's better than the private sector, but because they control the state, and therefore they have millions of public servants who, are going to on election day, vote for the state or the state party. I saw this at play when I was in Argentina, where. There were certain provinces where mining was banned by the provincial governor because if you had a mining company extracting ore and having a a staff and support system, the mining company would be the rival to the governor for the dispersing of jobs in that particular state and would affect his and his family's chance of being re-elected. So the state monopolies, because liberalism, if anything, should oppose monopolies, are always going to have a very, very hard take against people who say, we need to deconcentrate the monopoly, we need to spread it out, we need to countervailing forces. Because one of the big liberal ideas, David, is that you tame power by having other centers of power.
1: Right. But in many respects in South Africa, I mean, I think it's easy to get pessimistic about uh, where the country is and a large part of our failings are because we've had this unchecked single party dominant system for so long. But something that I think characterizes South Africa as well is it is a fairly multipolar society. We've got a free, robust press, quite a vibrant civil society uh, across the the ideological spectrum. Um, And, you know, but I think maybe what is uh, perhaps uh, going wrong with South Africa's democracy is we have fairly high levels of transparency, but low levels of accountability. Uh, So I think maybe some of those checks. Uh, and that that diversity of the political landscape, I think, are, are strengths, but perhaps not strong enough. What what is your view on that?
0: No, I, I think there's validity in what you're saying. Uh, let me say, I just spent last weekend uh, participating, both as a speaker and as a member of the audience, in the fantastically revived Fronthook literary festival, and it was quite striking uh, among us people. I appeared alongside with uh, political analysts like uh, Ralph Maccherita. And Adrian Basson, the editor-in-chief of the News 24, and listening to other people like Ferial Hafaji of the Daily Maverick, a lot of them, and David Gavissa, the biographer of and Mbeki, no one had any faith at all in the ANC's the government, government's ability to do pretty much anything. I mean, one of the people said, just abandon the idea of the government uh, because you've got to look, look at city administrations. That's all we can look at if we can look at levels of government that vaguely work in this country and this complete dismissal by, by a range of people of different ideologies and races for that matter that the central government is fit for purpose was just almost universal now that's a tiny ecosystem but but it's felt across the ground you know we had these devastating floods in KwaZulu-Natal a few weeks ago and it was quite interesting and and I immediately made a modest donation my wife and I to help alleviate the tragedy uh, and the consequence of those flooding for so many families and communities and the first appeal came from the government you know please donate to a thing, uh, fund for administered by the government and then one came from this you know fantastic NGO gift to the givers and we immediately donated that and, and I just put out on my twitter account well I ignored the government appeal um, but I've given immediately to gift the givers and it was just retweeted hundreds and hundreds of times because people were doing the same thing. And you know, we are a generous people, we are a caring society, but uh, we we ruled by people who have an utter indifference to any uh, concern except their own narrow self enrichment and uh, self preservation. And that is why there's a deep cynicism about the government. That is why there are alternative polls. I mean, in, in, in my book, uh, future tense i have what i call nine signposts of the future and six are negative and three are positive and one of the three bright positives is what i call borrowing from george h.w bush's speech in 1988 a thousand points of light which is civil society and you know th- there are fantastic community organizations in this country micro ones macro ones we have the solidarity fund which you know is uh, is peopled by some of the richest people in South Africa who have given their own money, billions of rounds, to help mitigate the worst excesses of the COVID lockdown economy that we have just coming out of. And um, I know one of those uh, philanthropists, and I wrote to her and I said how impressed I was by her generosity. And she said in her response, she said, yes, because I trust the people who are administering the Solidarity Fund. Of course, every one of them has got credibility not relating to any government positions, they don't have any, but to uh, their, uh, their achievements in the private sector. And, of course, David, I should say that there's a lot of, you know, not lot, there's quite a lot of private sector skullduggery in South Africa as we've seen in recent times. But by and large, you know, the, a lot of private sector companies in this country are the difference between South Africa um, being a going concern and becoming a failed state.
1: So, Tony, on the show, we've often spoken about the importance of political devolution and this phenomenon that we've just been referring to of civil society actors filling the void left by the retreating state. Let, um, let
0: me say it's completely unacceptable because we all, you know, some of us pay a huge, get a huge income tax bill, you know, uh, twice a year or monthly if you pay PAYE. And it's just, it's a horror show because you're paying nearly half your income at a certain, not mm-hmm. actually such a high level to the state to fund the goods, and you had to pay for all the goods again, ranging from, you know, inverters to get electricity not provided by ESCOM, which you're paying for anyway, private security because the police service is nowhere in sight, um, private education because so many state schools have failed, and you know, there's a long and depressing list. So yes, you're right, but we shouldn't accept the abnormality of the high cost, highly stuffed in terms of personnel state, that's retreated from its core functions, but you correct as a factual description, it has, and that is the reality we're in.
1: Well, Tony, I mean, I think if the state is incapable, I think uh, it is understandable that many people would turn to uh, these alternatives. Mm. Um, And I mean, I think we saw that with the July riots in KZN last year, Mm. communities coming to protect their property, their businesses, et cetera. Um, That is maybe something difficult to scale and to sustain, um, but, you know, I think that that showed also uh, that there is this dispersal of, of power um, in, in our society. But what does this mean for liberalism? Just getting back to the, the topic here, because, you know, if, if people are losing faith in kind of the civic institutions of the state, um, is there not a risk that perhaps people could maybe retreat into their ethnic or racial lagers? Um, you know, what, what, what role do you see liberalism playing in this kind of new context?
0: Well, well, I'm sure that is a danger, and, and I'm sure it's happening uh, in front of our eyes to some extent. You know, all you can do if, you, if you're a believer in the liberal cause and because it's it tends that the societies that adopt and embrace liberal ideas are more successful, they can do uh, more good for more people, is to keep advancing them and, and to show in real terms, you know, I, I, he's, I don't think he's a liberal. I don't know, he's probably a socialist, but Sir Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition in Britain, the British Labour Party, said an inarguable proposition. He said, without a strong economy, we cannot pay for a good society. Well, it's, it's a sine qua non. Now, South Africa, of course, we, uh, to the extent they have a, we, the government pr- 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 provides social goods, which, some of which it does. It does this by um, borrowing money, about two billion rand a day to fund itself which eventually you run out of money and you start to crowd out other items of uh, social expenditure because you're paying so much for your debt. And, you know, the figure I think is four trillion rand is our national debt in South Africa. It's ballooned. So, you know, if if you want to alleviate poverty, which is obviously essential in South Africa, you've got to be passionate about economic growth, as my colleague Ken Andrews said a few years ago. So, you know, that's what you've got to keep banging the drum for. You've got to say, if we don't have this, we'll never get that. And you've got to point it out. You've got to make it easy to make the connection. I I really think that what is so important in politics and life, and God knows, writing a good novel, is to have good storytellers. I'm not talking about confecting fables. I mean about taking abstract ideas into the thick of the fight, fight For people's better lives and livelihoods and showing how it can be done, where it has been done. You know, let's just take, you know, the obvious example. I don't know anyone today who is seeking to emigrate, immigrate to Venezuela. Don't think anyone's rushing to Venezuela. I don't think anyone's rushing to Nicaragua. I don't think anyone wants to go, particularly. To immigrate from a free liberal society to go to Hong Kong, which is now repressive. And so, why is all the traffic away from socialist states towards liberal states? And, you know, we could, the most extreme example, if you like, is the fight to the death in Ukraine. And that to me, and I'm not the first person, it's not an original proposition, is really a fight between two different systems aside from obviously the, the national sovereignty of the 42 million ukrainians which has been breached by russia it's the idea between and ukraine was an at-risk democracy there's a lot of kleptocracy and corruption there but broadly it was a country that believed and still does in a democratic way in embracing free markets if you like because they want to join the european union which uh, believes in the market economy, not in the dirigistic state economy of Russia, doesn't believe in a kleptocracy. And, you know, it's a terrible thing to say with thousands of people dying and terrible human rights abuses. The other thing about the feature of the war in Ukraine, if I could just dwell on it, it's it's not a racial thing because essentially most Russians are Slavs and most Ukrainians are Slavs, but it is in many ways beyond the issue of national sovereignty a fight over two big ideas in the world, the authoritarian, kleptocratic, dirigistic state, exemplified by Putin's Russia, and its opposite, more or less exemplified by Zelensky's Ukraine with some health warnings attached. And that to me actually illustrates vividly, perhaps too vividly, too much bloodshed of the struggle for freedom and we need to remind South Africans that it's quite possible that the government uh, or a government could extinguish all your freedoms in this country, as indeed happened in our recent times. We know there's we're still under a when I last checked a state of national disaster, it's quite outrageous actually. I mean, because clearly uh, coronavirus is because of the inoculations and the uh, herd immunity, I think we've achieved it is much less lethal than it was. Our hospitals are no longer crowded uh, by uh, extreme at-risk patients, and yet we still have a government that's got this power to impose regulations which are utterly arbitrary, completely random, totally ideological in some cases, and have very little to do with public health. And, you know, people need to see, take, take a warning sign from that and say, you're actually, if you believe in your sovereign rights, which are given to an individual you also need to remember talking about great liberals from yesteryear alan payton who in a one sentence formulation said and this is in the darkest days of apartheid and sadly it applies 28 years after so-called democratic freedom arrived here he said man was not born to go down on his belly before the state and to that i can only say amen
1: so tony uh, you mentioned vladimir putin and uh, in 2019 he was interviewed by the financial times and he said that the liberal idea was obsolete and uh, mm-hmm. was no longer useful and yeah, i wondered what your thoughts were about the state of liberalism globally and uh, we've seen the rise of kind of various populist movements on the left and the right uh, do you think that uh, the foundations of liberalism are still as strong as they were say at the end of the Cold War in 1989?
0: Oh, they definitely not. Although I have to say after the 24th of February with this great Ukraine fight back, they're probably much stronger than they were before the 24th of February. But suddenly uh, the West seemed to sort of recover its mojo. It understood was what was at risk. I mean, a lot of self-interest involved, you know, ukraine's next right next to poland and second largest country in europe and poland's right next to germany so but anyway it doesn't really matter motive is much less uh dramatic than re- more important than the result so i, I think it's an actually better shape now than the um than, than it was earlier this year which uh, i'd almost say it's it's, it's it's a good result because this war is too terrible with huge human costs but if there is some positive outcome, I think that is it. But there has been a, a there's been a backslide. There's been a liberal democrat backslide uh, across the world, both with the rise of illiberal democrats, uh, Orbán in Hungary being a prime, but by no means the sole example, and and across our continent as well, where there was a huge democratic resurgence in the early part of the century. But there's been a backsliding uh, where countries have embraced elections, but not all the other bundle of freedoms that go with it. And then within hugely settled democracies, and let's take the one of the most venerable, the United States. I mean, uh, what happened in the Trump era and just afterwards was profoundly undemocratic, you know, charging the capital, disputing clearly incontestably correct election results. That is the, that's the role of autocrats. And you can also argue on the other side, This extreme woke identitarianism is a deep threat to free speech. So you've got plenty of assaults in the United States, right from the center to the San Francisco School Board in California, which um, are problematic for the advancement of liberal democracy. And then, you know, perhaps of more relevance to us because it's closer to us in terms of its evolution as democracy, India. I mean, what Modi has done in India with his BJP is to fetishize Hindu nationalism to the exclusion of the plural society that was championed by uh, Nehru and before him Mahatma Gandhi, and at great cost, I think, to the democratic project and prospects of India, which is a hugely important country. So, yes, there has been a backsliding. And, you know, it's not all the end of history as Francis Fukuyama, although somewhat misrepresented, suggested might have happened with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, you know, closer again to us, was happened in North Africa, the failure of the Arab Spring. I, I mean, there was a real moment, and that, how long ago was that, four or five years ago, that we thought, wow, you know, here are all these autocracies that um, are gonna become democracies didn't happen at all. Not in any one of them. And I, there is a lesson from this because in deeply authoritarian systems, you really have nothing outside the state or the president's palace, and perhaps in the case of theocracies, you know, the religious centers, and that's it. There's no civil society, there's no newspapers, there's no trade unions, there's no political opposition. And to that extent, South Africa, actually during the struggle for apar- against apartheid for democracy, At many, many uh, difficult moments, it was very hard to advance uh, uh, ideas against the all-powerful National Party state. Newspaper editors were imperiled, trade unions were detained without trial, but they persevered. So actually, South Africa has a much richer tradition of what you might call the liberal plural idea, and that has not disappeared despite the excesses of the A and C and And I think that does actually put us in a much stronger position than other at-risk democracies in the world, which is a matter I think we should celebrate and build on.
1: So Tony, you mentioned India. And I, when I was studying my master's in political science, I wrote my dissertation on the end of single party dominance in India. So I looked at the Congress party of India. Uh, coincidentally, uh, Congress was in power unchecked for 30 years, uh, 1947 to 1977. And what dislodged them was a rainbow coalition of opposition parties. Uh, Do you foresee something like that happening here in South Africa? And how might those coalition dynamics play out in the South African context? And what role for the the uh, flag bearer, the standard bearer of liberalism, the Democratic alliance in a potential well, coalition. let scenario. me say
0: this that, that uh, when I was writing my book, Future Tense, I, I didn't see your thesis, and uh, it's probably impoverished my book as a result of not seeing it. But I took exactly the same. I called one of the positive uh, signposts of the future is what I call Judgment Day. That I reckon about 30 years in a modern democracy is what a ruling party has until it runs out of support. Uh, and we'll be at that moment in two years' time in South Africa. And I, I certainly quote the example of the India Congress Party, because it was such a powerful one, Liberation Party founding the Democrat, just like the ANC. Even more instructive, because it was exactly the same uh, time frame, was the Israeli Labor Party, the Mapai, which dominated the whole of Israeli society between 1948 and 1977, nearly 30 years. And they were voted out for a combination of you know, incompetence during the 1973 war, Corruption scandals and people just got sick and tired of one party rule. And, you know, when I met Ariel Sharon, when he was Prime Minister of Israel, he told me a fantastic story. He said that he was the founder of Likud with Menachem Begin. He said that you couldn't be promoted in the Israel Defense Force if you were not a member of the Labour Party beyond the rank of brigadier to become Major General. You had to have a Labour Party. Sounds just like South Africa. So, and they ran out of power. And you know, what's interesting is, you know, the the Congress party of India, the Gaulists in France are another example of a liberation party. Congress in India, Gaulists in France, the RPI, Mexican Revolutionary Party, the Israeli party are today fractions of what they once were. They are overwhelmingly on the opposition benches, likely not to get to power again anytime soon. So yeah, I, I think the ANC is destined for the same fate for a range of reasons. On the question of coalitions, David, it's, it's very difficult. We've seen that. I, I would say, though, that if I might just stick with Israel, because I'm married to an Israeli, so we have a lot of Israeli politics and South African politics coursing through our home on a daily basis. It's interesting. You've got this extraordinary six-party coalition in Israel, which embraces everyone from left-wing Arab parties to right-wing Jewish nationalist parties, united by one thing, An absolute determination that Bibi Netanyahu should never come to power again. They have agreed, they managed to pass a budget, despite having very little ideological coherence. And I suspect in South Africa, and I know it's very hard, there will be a coalition based on an absolute determination that the ANC needs to go if South Africa is to become a better country. And I think that has really seeped into the minds and hearts and souls of so many people now.
1: We at the Center for Risk Analysis, Tony, uh, looking at the run-up to the 2024 elections, and one of the scenarios that we put forward is this, what we call the wild dogs thesis, which is that this motley assortment of opposition parties could bring bu- bring down the mighty buffalo of the ANC that for so long has been uh, roaming the savannah unchecked. Uh, there was always this assumption that it was a lion that would bring down uh, the buffalo, but we think that the wild dogs will, will have a better yeah, chance.
0: Yeah, I, I, I read those scenarios. It's so very interesting. Uh, look, the one thing you can't do, in my opinion, although it makes it very sexy politically, is you can't put a percentage. So there's only 5% mm. chances. Who knows? We, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, the world can blow up next year. I mean, anything's possible. So I don't know what the percentages are, but but I think there is is some prospect. That Look, the other thing is, it depends. It Look, it depends if... In terms of a governing coalition, it entirely depends on how low the ANC goes. Uh, I mean, the issue is if the ANC gets above 45%, which is, I think, where they'll land, there won't be any coalition. The ANC will stay in power and will do a deal with the Mickey Mouse parties. You know, it's much easier to get the in exchange for a cabinet seat you've already got, a Bantu Alamisa for one. I, I don't know who it'll be. The IFPs are, you know, will probably go in. They'll be able to get enough small parties to prop them up. Uh, it will be just con- messes before. If the ANC gets in the low 40s and there aren't enough small parties, it's going to have to make a choice. Never mind the opposition making a choice. Does it align itself with the EFF or the DA? Because they're the only parties conceived that'll have the bulk to bring the ANC over 50%. And at the moment that the ANC exercises that choice, there will be a split in the ANC because they are. I think it's easier for the ANC to do a deal with the EFF, but there will be people in the ANC, and I know some of them who are constitutional Democrats who won't abide the EFF. And there are probably far more people in the ANC who cannot abide the idea of being in business with the DA. So, either way, there's going to be a choice, and therefore, I think a split. So, I do think the dynamic happens when the ANC gets below 50%, but I think one's got to qualify that and say, all this is just pie in the sky. You know, wish uh, wish listing, unless the ANC goes quite low, because otherwise I think the ANC will cobble together coalition, which it is the majority party.
1: Yeah, I think we should be careful of wishful thinking and confirmation Mm -hmm. bias uh, when we analyse these trends.
0: Uh, But But why not? It would be wonderful to have one's bias confirmed in such a way, would it not?
1: (laughs) Indeed, Um, but I mean, you yourself uh, had your own uh, experiment with coalition politics uh, when the DA combined with the IFP. Yeah, so tell us the was, blood the blood no, well, was
0: not bad well the ifp was problematic but really we were only for a short while in co-government with them in KwaZulu natal we had two seats in the provincial executive that was fine but i mean during the next election campaign 2004 they 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 banged on about the issue of lundi being the capital of kzn and it just ate into our support in places like Peter Maritzburg. And people's experience of IFP government, I have to say, in in Zuland, was a very bad one. A a lot of people did not think the IFP was better than the ANC when it came to actually delivering the goods or tamping out the passenger network. But, of course, ideologically, the IFP and the DA were much closer aligned than anyone else. So I think there's a difference between theory and practice. But I do think it was necessary for the DA to show it was in business – with credible parties. And the IFP, if nothing else, is credible. I mean, governed KwaZulu-Natal, it was one stage of 10% party, and it had a lot of support in certain parts of South Africa. That has, of course, changed over time. The much more difficult experiment, because it had lasting consequences, was the DA or DP's decision when I was leader to form an, a, a merger with the National Party, ideological enemy and a apartheid. Now, the ally in the new South Africa. And of course, the ANC said, this is just the gang up of the whites. It wasn't that. It was to actually close down the competition and the opposition. We could have annihilated the National Party over time. But then that would have been the cost of actually taking on the ANC, which was what we were trying to do. So we thought, let's close down the competition and uh, let's take the fight into the major battlefield. Now, of course, we had tremendous problems with the elements of the national, new national party leadership, Martinus van skalkweg uh, Renia Skuman, Daryl Swanepoel, people like that, who were determined not to create a new party, but to recreate the national party. So they left, we lost our foothold in the provincial government, in the city of Cape Town, and it took us between 2001 and 2006, five long and difficult years to get it back, which we did eventually. But the truth of the matter is, if the DA had not done the merger it did, or the DP, to create the DA, the DA would not be governing Cape Town today, the Western Cape, because we understood that our voters, or our potential voters, wanted to see those parties stop fighting with each other and take on a common cause. And that's why we did it. And to that extent, it was successful, although it had quite a hefty price tag attached. So. Coalitions, whether they formalize mergers like the DA was between the DP and the NNP or they're informal, such as the situation you've got in the city governments and Joburg and Kurileni and Chwani, they're hard and they require careful management, but you've got to remember why you're doing them.
1: And what about this proposal that I've seen often referred to in the media that the DA should throw in its lot with the so-called moderate ANC that you referred to? Uh, you well, know, when I, you I, when you pro people, the,
0: David, I'm, I'm not in the DA leadership, so I I really can't uh, comment on a construct that <laughs> I didn't make.
1: No, of course, uh, but you know, what potentially, as an observer of politics rather than a participant, would you say uh, would be the effect of of such a decision? Because you know, in many respects, the DA could alienate its core constituency. A lot of its identity is built on, on criticizing the ANC and could be uh, linked to that. Uh, many of the failures of ANC governance. Could that, well, could that end up doing you know, the good?
0: You know what they say when you go and buy something or you get some shiny bauble sent you in the, your email? T's and C's apply. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, it's entirely dependent on the terms and conditions. I don't have a neuralgia speaking personally, even as the ex-DA leader, that the DA should under no set of circumstances ever unto a day have anything to do with the ANC. I think arguably they should try and build something outside of the ANC. But if the conditions in the country change and the DA has on its own terms a prospect of entering some governance arrangement, well, it should look at the terms and conditions, see what it has to offer, what deal it can get for its supporters. Now, you say it's supporters. Yes, its most DA supporters are pretty anti-ANC. If I lined up 10 people, probably who um, you know, donate to the Institute of Race Relations, they've got businesses, and I say, look, we're on a precipice. The DA, if the DA gives its support to the ANC, it'll prevent the ANC going to business, the EFF, for example. That's the two alternatives. I guarantee you 10 out of 10 of the uh, race relations supporters would say, please do that, because the country... Is going to be at greater risk if that happens if i gave you another scenario which said look there's a there's a schism in the anc between the ret crowd and the more constitutional democratic crowd if the da helps the latter they'll get rid of the former." that's another set of possibilities so ideally the da but the da is you've got to remember you know what's the real estate you know how, how much of the market does the DA control The DA controls, I don't know, 22% or 21%. On a good day in the next section, it might get 25%. Now, 25% is not 50%. That you've got to remember. So, you know, it it depends. I I would not absolutely uh, rule anything out. I would say that as a South African citizen, never mind whatever my DA previous credentials are, I think getting the ANC out of power is a necessary good for the country. And if that can be achieved, it should be done. If that's not achievable, well, we've got to look at the other options to try and improve South Africa, its standing and where it's going.
1: Right, well, Tony, just in conclusion, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but Uh looking at this idea of liberalism, sometimes it can be a bit nebulous. Uh, But putting aside politics, I mean, how can viewers of this show adopt a kind of liberal mindset and how? Can that help them to navigate through the complexity and some of the risks that we see in South Africa and build a better, more free, open and prosperous South Africa?
0: Just remember, you're a sovereign individual. You've got God-given constitutionally endorsed rights. You must stand up for them and you must take up all comers who prevent you from exercising them. And that, to me, is what the liberal citizen needs to be. And it's about creating and informed citizenry who understand that, who are not waiting as supplicants for some good czar, you know, the great Tolstoyan concept, who will hand out some nice goodies to you. That's not going to happen. You've got to go and take it for yourself, within the bounds, obviously, of an of a order-based society.
1: Well, Tony Leon, I think that that is a fitting point to end this conversation, a call to arms for liberalism. Thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansar.
0: Thank you very much, David. Be well, hey? And thanks for the opportunity.
1: If you enjoyed this conversation and you're watching on YouTube, please do leave your thoughts down in the comments section below. And also remember to like this video and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well. And also if you are interested in my own insights, my writing and my reflections on these episodes and other ideas, you're welcome to subscribe to my personal newsletter. There's a link down in the description below where you can sign up. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.